Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and today's episode, I'll be talking about the global drug development sector with Charles Rubon, who is CEO at Verdo. So who is my guest for you to look forward to today? Well, Charles has over 25 years of experience and has held a rich and diverse executive leadership positions in fast-growing international healthcare companies. His experience includes manufacturing, R&D, business development, and global management in biotech and biopharma companies. He is currently CEO of Verdo, a key player in bioprocessing, serving advanced solutions to the biotechnology and biopharmaceutical industry worldwide. Prior to this, he was the co-CEO at HTL Biotechnology, COO of DBV Technologies, and also spent a considerable time at Eurogroup Consulting and Stalagenes. He's been instrumental in streamlining supply chain operations, establishing strategic alliances, developing and launching therapeutic biologics in Europe, the United States, and Japan as part of his business activities. He has also been heavily exposed to investors in both the public and private environments, which we cover on today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate wherever you are listening. And please, please, please enjoy today's show. Hey, Charles, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hey, Roman, thank you very much for uh, for having me. And I'm gonna let I'm gonna let our listener into a little secret, Charles, which is this is our third attempt <laughs> at doing this interview. I think Charles and I have uh, have been cursed with internet connections and sound issues, so we are. Uh, this is definitely going to be worth waiting for for our listener. So, Charles. Tell our listener a little bit about you and your background in the sector. You've had a, a very extensive career up to your point uh, today at Verdo. So talk us through some of the kind of big kind of milestones and uh, the roles that you've done on on that journey. Sure. So maybe my career path is, uh, is a little bit similar to trying to recall the podcast, right? It's not <laughs> it's not a straight line, uh, really. So um, and you'll see that. So I've, I've been... Uh, I'm an engineer by training, um, a French engineer. I did a Master of Science at uh, Harvard, MIT, and the Faculty of Pharmacy in Lyon. Uh, so very technical, passionate about mathematics and, and, and uh, healthcare. Um, returning to France, I decided, though, to really move into management consulting for, for eight years um, with the idea of really uh, broadening my experience and focusing there in healthcare and R&D for our clients. And learning a, a job as well, right? At that time, I did, being a consultant, I didn't know what, whether being a consultant was a job, but actually it, I learned a lot. And I learned a lot really helping and supporting mid-sized companies um, and, and really having a very significant amount of experience here um, and learning from my mistakes as well. Uh, I moved then in Biopharma rather quickly. Uh, seven years after, after that experience, I, I worked um, for a company named Staller James, uh, who was um, a leader in allergy and immunology. It was an incredible experience um, because the company was actually developing and producing treatments for patients who um, were allergic and and it was really a name patient product. I think it was a supply chain miracle in so to say, right? Each time you basically have a patient, you design a specific product for them. So it's a kind of, you know, design, make to, to order type of, of process. 
And uh, I stayed there for eight years. Uh, that was really uh, outstanding. We grew the company significantly. We faced regularly hurdles, leading us to actually develop a significant product, uh, R&D product portfolio. And that's where I really jumped into R&D significantly. We increased our R&D effort from 3% to 17%, something like that. And we have we had to develop new um, new R and D product for for establishing. So uh, I stayed it for for eight years. Then change of shareholder. I moved into DBV Technology, which was uh, also as a head of R and D of DBV Technology. Uh, so it was a company listed at Euronext, and that was actually um, led by a founder who discovered the uh, immune potencies of the skin. A little bit by accident, to be frank, uh, but that was uh, a way to, uh, you know, they discovered a way to actually activate immune systems through the skin uh, thanks to a patch. They had a number of projects, like every founders, right? And uh, we had to, you know, streamline a little bit the, the, the R&D portfolio uh, to conduct a phase two in the US for peanut allergy that was meant to be successful. And we IPO the company at the NASDAQ at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Let's let's pause there because I know you've got um, you know, another couple of key roles to before you know we get to where you are today. And it's funny just looking at your the, the, those first initial roles in your career, like big chunks of time, right? Like almost you know five to ten years at each of those roles. You like to clearly a loyal individual and 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 stick around at companies rather than you know, jumping every every couple of years. One question I had for you was, you you seem to go from kind of from supply chain to R and D, and then as you went into DBV, you you kind of went on a transition to becoming a business leader and ultimately you know uh, chief operating officer at the business there. You know, many of our many of our listeners are on that journey at the minute where they come from technical backgrounds or maybe project management backgrounds, and they're kind of want to be you know more commercial and go down that kind of more leadership route how did you find that transition and any lessons or learnings that you had from kind of going from that kind of more technical head to a more commercial one i think it was not planned really to be frank raman i think um i had you know the um the grit and the passion for really exploring i think um and really making experience right and really and then so um uh, I when I I was first pa- really passionate about you know that supply chain question because really in the 90s it was something that was very strong uh, globally in industry how do you connect companies together to really address the final patient or final customer needs uh, but always in the back of my mind I really wanted to apply that to uh, to the healthcare industry and I was lucky enough uh, to see that the healthcare industry had very poor supply chain, right? Because globally, the healthcare industry and the farm industry is a little bit richer uh, than the other industries. And uh, there there was definitely a significant uh, room uh, for optimization uh, when when it comes to supply so to um, to uh, to supply chain in healthcare industry. So supply chain has been, you know, the way at the transition to the healthcare industry. Then I discovered the R and D and science, right? Later on, and so it's really it's a new um, uh, new discovery each time. And I think as long as you're passionate about your what you're doing, you're trying to do the best job you can. 
you you're you're investing you know a lot of energy and you're really trying trying to create a team around you i think um, if you are in a non-toxic environment, I think it's also a, a, an important point. You really have to understand whether actually in what type of environment you, you land in. I think you've, you have, um, yeah, I mean, significant opportunity ahead of you. So I think, um, and I've been really lucky to, you know, um, uh, yeah, to jump from one job to to another with the the stakes uh, that actually were that were active at the at the moment. <laughs> And you, thank you for that, by the way. I think that's really insightful for our listener on, you know, whether they're planning that journey or they just find themselves on that journey. I think your experiences are very useful. And you, obviously you found yourself in, in New York, uh, relocated from, from France to New York. And you mentioned an IPO at a, I think at a phase two. Talk us through that period because, you know, my, uh, this seems to be a pivotal part of your story in this kind of move to the US and then being involved in an IPO experience. I, I, and I, I suppose my question around this time is, you know, when, and we talked off air, you know, DBV, I had a bit of dealing with DBV back in former life at a CDMO. So I knew the business and it was a very exciting technology that they were working on. And they, they kind of took the, I suppose, path to decide to go alone and not you know, license and sell to a big pharma company or anything like that. So how was that time where you decided, you know, what you know that decision-making process to, you know, avoid the traditional route of licensing and actually go big <laughs> and IPO and go for it yourself? It must have been incredible to be be part of something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think you're doing an IPO is an incredible experience um, because you know it's you know I think it's the way you really come out to do the world. You're becoming public. Uh, uh, but it's the result of a, of you know a, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a, about a you know a passion and a project. So it's really I would say the the tip of the of the of the iceberg. I would say um, I think what was great with DBV is really the idea uh, that we were developing something extremely extremely unique. Uh, it, it's sort of real you know blue ocean strategy as you would learn from you know my my times at. In SEAD, right, you're, you're talking about the totally untapped medical need. We're talking about peanut allergy. And it, it comes with a new solution, just a patch on the skin, right? Who would believe that with a patch on the skin, you would treat peanut allergy, right? And no one would believe it. Uh, but we had really strong scientific evidences, and we had a strong team. We had a belief, and we, we, we made it happen, you know, step after step. We were able to convince doctors, uh, opinion leaders, regulators to really make that happen. And finally, investors, right? Because this is, I mean, the investors, and especially in the US, are extremely science-driven. Um, so they, they it's a very professionalized um, uh, activity, right? And you have, uh, in within Wall Street, you really have the investors that are specialized not only in healthcare but specialists in biology and the team that you're basically are facing are not looking at only at the way you 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 at your financials right the first thing that they're looking at is the quality of the science the second is the quality of the people uh and obviously and this is what i found really absolutely uh extraordinary right because i mean as the three of us right this pierre ribbon the ceo 
the CFO, David Chilensky, I mean, two amazing guys, and myself, who actually we are facing those investors doing hundreds of meetings uh, a year. And the main topic was the science. What is the quality of the science? What? Tell me more about that publication. Tell me more about that patient. How do you compare to, um, to this uh, other trial? How consistent is your data? So, I mean, you know, I think my need to really have something that was meaningful in terms of, you know, patient outcome and also quality of the science was actually totally fulfilled. And I felt the quality of the, of the exchange where they were extremely strong and very demanding, and they were pushing us in the right direction. And I think in the end, that's really what led us to decide to go public instead of going um, of, 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 of uh, you know, um, licensing out the product, uh, because we would be in a we would be in a position by IPOing the company uh, to be in control of the development of the drug, with a uh, an environment that actually would uh, help us grow, uh, give us the need the, the the resources, and would trust us. Sorry to interrupt there. Your um, it was interesting what you were saying there around the nature of the questions you were receiving from investors on the East Coast and. If I've understood correctly, that was different to what you'd experience in Europe or what you'd expect to experience in Europe. Was there a a more savvier scientific approach from some of the investors that you were speaking to in 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 your time during the US in 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 Europe? I think definitely. Uh, I think definitely, and it, I think you really have very very good people in Europe as well, right? But just the experience that you have in the US, the experience that you have on the East Coast, the experience that you have in the New York and Boston area. Uh, the network that they have, their ability to connect you with all the best scientists, the best doctors in the world is totally unprecedented, especially in healthcare because healthcare, R&D, healthcare product development is made in the US. I mean, the, com- the, the US is the country that has the greatest spending by far in, in um, pharmaceutical product development meaning that the resources are there, uh, the financing are there, and the expertise as well. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely a no-brainer. The, the, uh, the, and, and you, really have, um, uh, you really have extremely good people in uh, the US. It's extremely, extremely impressive. So you are loving life at DBV. You have uh, you know, just completed an IPO, very exciting time. So after seven years so what was the decision like to move on and relocate back to france because i suspect that was a a difficult decision given the success that you'd achieved there so what was it that came calling and you know what was it that ultimately led you to to bring your family back back to paris yeah we 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 are it's true that we've had an amazing time really growing to be significantly in the in the in the u.s um, I mean, also for personal reason, really had it was basically the end of you know a cycle of four years in the in the U.S. And also for personal reason, I had to really come back uh, to um, to uh, to France. At the same time, um, um, Bridgepoint, a private equity firm, just called me while I was I was there, right, thinking about the new transition, uh, and 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 mentioned. A company named HTL Biotechnology, uh, and that which was a little bit below the radar to me, um, they, and they asked me to kind of you know co-lead that company, which was a 
which still is actually a leader in um, production of injectable grade hyaluronic acid. So still biopharma and biotech type of, uh, of company, but based in France, which is which actually was better for me at that point in time. And a very nice opportunity to kind of leverage the experience I had in the past to, you know, further grow the, the company. And talk us through that time there then, because you had a, a, a few years with that business, obviously, before we get to Verdo. So what was that? I think it's three, about three years at HCL Biotech. So what was that journey like? And obviously under the ownership of private equity as well. So it's different, presumably, for your from your public time, uh, you know, <laughs> over over in the US. Yeah, you're right, Raman. I think it's a very much a totally different uh, environment. And, you know, I think it's probably one of my learning through my, my journey. I had the chance to be in a position to choose the people I would be working with and working for. Um, I mean, DBV Technology had the chance to really work with outstanding people, investors, and and leaders. Same here. I had HGL Biotechnology, the 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 the, the, the private equity fund Bridgepoint really um, had a team, a French team, which was and which still is really totally outstanding, and uh, who had you know uh, previously invested a year ago in the company. Um, and the project itself was really uh, extremely um, interesting because it um, HDL was a company a little bit below the radar, producing heavily uh, an extremely good quality product of injectable grade hyaluronic acid. Um, but the idea was to actually take it to the next level um, in a way. So I say exposing the company a little bit more to the world. Um, creating uh, additional innovation with hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid can be considered as a platform, diversifying um, the product portfolio, um, and we did that with um, with um, uh, the, the complement of hyaluronic acid, which is botulinum toxin. So we created a, a botulinum toxin uh, franchise with a unit that we created in the in the US. We wanted to also trigger innovation around our product, uh, and the best way potentially was to do a sort of external R&D innovation um, uh, through a, a, a vehicle that we call the incubator. So it, it basically it's an investment fund. So we had the ability to invest in biotech who would be using hyaluronic acid. So I think that was a nice way to uh, not to you know, onboard tons of scientists within the company, but actually through the investment levers to help the world work with our product. Um, all of this was really exciting, was new. It was, again, a you know a sort of growth engine story um, on the base of, of HA, hyaluronic acid, which is really, truly a magic molecule. So it took us basically three years really to do this, to also scale up the manufacturing capacity and to end up, you know, um, um, accelerate uh you know the exit of bridgepoint at a very good multiple uh in in 2022 uh and that was again an amazing process not an ipo but actually you know they had the exit of that company 11 private equity firm really came into the into the discussion uh and i must say that the, the actually the ipo experience uh, you know the investor relation experience really helped me significantly to really trigger that very heavy process of uh, you know a number of funds coming to us to 
and say, hey, I want to I acquire HDL. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Well, congratulations as well, because I imagine that was... Uh, well, it is a huge achievement that you managed to pull off, obviously going in as the leader of that business and then navigating an exit for at a great multiple for a private equity company, which is ultimately why these companies exist. And so I'm sure they were very pleased <laughs> with their decision to uh, extract you from uh, DBV in the US and bring you back home. And so, so I suppose it begs the question, you know, you're in uh, 2022 and presumably, you know, life's, you've had a few very successful uh, stints at DBV and HDL, probably enough to where you didn't need to work every day or be CEO and deal with the pressure of CEOs. So that brings us nicely on to now your position at Verdot. And so how did that come about then? Were you, you know, were you thinking about putting your feet up and, you know, we've, we've talked offline about your kids and, you know, I presume there was an opportunity to travel around the world and go and spend more time with your children or was that never, never an option? I think the, um, obviously we, we've been, um, exhausted, but also really excited about the exit, uh, of Bridgepoint, uh, from HTL. Um, but I felt like, you know, uh, it was a very positive and good experience. And I, I really, I think there's a goal for me to experience more, right. And learning more, um, I think in the end, you know, I think obviously uh, it comes together with the chance of making successful deals, which um, is, is is good for me and my family. But in the end, what 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 the the re- the, the, the most important thing is actually what you learn, why the experience that you're making, uh, you're making with people, the success of doing this, of doing things that actually you would have people would have considered being impossible before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 really. Uh, I, and I, I'm still into this type of, you know, um, um, uh, quest in a way. So I really wanted to experience something else. I didn't expect that to come so fast. And actually, just after the exit of HCL, I just bumped into um, Loxera, uh, who, um, together with Qualium, two private equity funds, uh, French funds, recently acquired a, another company, Verdot. Um, and, uh, and also Verdo was a very interesting play. I'd never heard about Verdo before, um, but the company really had, you know, some of the features of interest, very strong expertise in terms of quality, um, quality of the people, uh, um, extremely, um, sitting on the, of their good business trends. And I would say a healthy and non-toxic environment. Uh, and I think this is definitely something that is important that is linked to the quality of the people that are surrounding you. Um, and this is basically, uh, so Pierre Moustial, one of the, of the, of the partners of Luxial, to me, would you want to take the job? I'd say, well, why not? Let's, let's try this. So basically happened in December last year. And here I am after six months at Verdo, uh, six or seven months. And I'm, I'm happy to, 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 with with that decision, and let's talk about your experience there so far. You know, and also just to, you know tell a listener a bit about Verdo and what you guys do, and you know the technology that you have, and the incredible, I suppose, uh, downstream processing, bioprocessing equipment that you guys are involved with as well, because it's pretty critical in the modern day 
kind of biopharma supply chain. So yeah, give us give our listener a bit of a kind of a overview of what the business does and I suppose your role there and what you're, you've been brought in to do, I suspect it is to grow the business, but if you can kind of go into a bit more detail, that would be, uh, I'm sure, very, very useful and insightful for our listener. So, so Berdo is a, uh, it's a concentrate, right? I, I like this, you know, concentrate of, you know, expertise of energy. Uh, it's a small boutique that really has a tremendous level of expertise. Um, it really operates um, in healthcare only in the field of downstream purification for for biologics right we named that chromatography filtration um we are a player that is based in france that has uh, you know uh, operations uh in asia and in the us um we and we we are very you know i think 50 percent of our business is uh is us already 20 percent is china the company is small, very agile, um, and uh, really operates globally. And it's it, it's interesting because I really like the idea of you know supporting the field of biologics. You know, it's um, it's a little bit innovation in motion, right? It's such a chance to really, I mean, work together with innovators working gene therapy, cell therapy, mRNA. I mean, mRNA has been and is. A revolution, right? The chance to really, um, uh, you know, work together uh, and uh, contribute to that effort of mRNA—it's absolutely fantastic. At the same time, it's very science-based, right? I mean, those those molecules are extremely complex. They are fragile. They're challenging to develop. It's not mass production at all, uh, and 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 you need to develop a lot of different drugs um, to achieve, you know safety efficacy and cost effectiveness right the cost of producing those drugs is something that is extremely important and um and really verdo has the capabilities of you know um providing something valuable to the to the field i mean um because the obviously the, the it's a, it's, a, it's a field that is really dominated by uh, some very very big players uh, but the, the field itself really is a very agile um, um, set of, 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 of companies that need flexibility, rapidity, uh, speed, customization, and, and low impact, right? And we have that at Valdo, right? The quality of our product is, uh, is really extremely renowned um, and, and very well thought. Uh, and, and we definitely have the ability to develop, um, you know, solutions which are globally chromatography equipment skids and we've been you know adjusting our offer to you know the, the new uh, cell engine therapy product such as in the with with single use equipment um so yeah we we have really deep, interesting differentiating um features and what what's the level of ambition for the business then obviously you given your given your success track record to date is it to you know suppose you, by the sounds of it you've got a fantastic brand and product offering and in terms of like it's you know very well respected and people tend to use your services and products again and again so what's the plan in terms of is it just a simple case of growth and and spreading the message globally yeah well globally i think the, the idea is to you know grow the business and to double the size of the business to really um you know take it to the next level so that we we reach the next um uh the next critical mass and that will be done through you know 
the obvious, um, you know, um, R and D efforts. We're bringing new innovation to uh, to the to the to the market, and it's interesting because the way we innovate at Bordeaux is is not innovation for innovation, right? It's really purpose driven. Um, I think you you the, the best parallel that you can make is probably think uh, we we're making very elegant and well designed product. Like think about. Um, uh, Patagonia, for instance, right? I think, you know, they are very technical um, um, product. They are smartly designed. They are reusable. They are, think, they are thought exactly this way. And if you think about the way our products are being designed, they're extremely well designed with a very low impact mindset uh, and with very, um, you know, user-friendly uh, approaches. So I think, you know, continuing investing in R&D, uh, Creating that portfolio of unique product is something that is uh, important. Second, being extremely customer centric, and and we we are seeing you know a lot of of needs into uh, you know I think being able to really carefully listen to a customer. Uh, you know, it's a constant active listening that we're doing. It's not only agreeing to what they are, it's not always agreeing to what they are they are asking us. We are teaming up with those customers. Um, it's it's about you know. Obviously, delivering the quality because we are in a pharma environment, and everyone knows um, that. I mean, quality is an absolutely uh, absolute must, and we've been blessed because the company has been, you know, owned by Biorad in the past. So, the level of maturity of the quality system within the company is extremely high. It was um, a, a much higher than a company that are our size usually. And the last but not least, the, I think. Sustainability is also very, very important, and that's really also something that makes us extremely unique. I think if you think about the carbon footprint of the company, um, I believe our, our our carbon footprint per employee is less than forty tons, which is very, very low for for our industry. Um, because our product are really extremely well engineered, we're trying to use um, uh, minimal, um, uh, you know. Uh, we're recycling a lot. We are doing the life cycle analysis of our product. We are trying to decrease the energy, energy consumption. We're benefiting from the, um, um, you know, a very solid energy mix in France as well. And uh, and and finally, it leads our you know product to be um, just lighter. For instance, I think our you know a single standard chromatography colon of Verdot probably weights fifty percent. Of the one of uh, the main competitor, right? It's fifty percent less steel. It's and it's obviously less energy to produce all this, but also to transport and to manipulate. And so we can do just better than the bigger players because we have a smarter design. <laughs> and you've you've talked previously when when you know off air. I love and I you know hope you can share this with our listeners. You you talked about Patagonia and being inspired by Patagonia with the way that you think about Verdo. Do you mind talking our listener about that? Because I, I found that particularly useful when thinking about bringing together some of the functionality and sustainability factors that you, you just mentioned there. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's uh, you know, um, Patagonia, um, I mean, design and, and mindset is, you know, led by two things. Uh, first, um, it has to be thought and designed by people who are final users, right? Uh, at Patagonia, we're actually designing surfwear, right, for surf. 
they were actually testing their own equipment uh, in, in the sea, right? That's what they were doing, right? They were coming back, testing it, and redesigning any Patagonia equipment. Same for the ski. So exactly what we're doing, right? We are very, very close to our clients. We even have, you know, ex-client people who have having joined the company and uh, and being extremely uh, close to the needs of our clients really help us design the best product. The second element is the fact we want those products to be sustainable, right? I think we really have to exit the world where actually everything should can be thrown away. And in pharma, it's a very big issue. It's a very, very big issue. Uh, and, and everyone is talking about it right now, but at Verdot, what we're doing is to kind of use the... Um, um, and design our equipment in a way that we we are reducing waste enormously. We're reducing energy enormously to really uh, have product that are extremely design uh, well designed. Right? It's not a it's not a um, you can do both. So it's, you don't have to to you know to limit the uh, the environmental impact to actually have a, have a lower uh, client footprint. I mean, they go. Uh, they, 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 they both go together. You can have an excellent product with an extremely good uh, uh, environmental footprint. And and I think we're very good at doing it. I love that. I think it's really, I think it's great to be inspired by brands that many people have heard of and actually utilize um, learnings and thought process and approaches from other industries. So I applaud you guys for doing that. And so let's talk about the future in terms of what's going on in, in the market at the minute. And, you know, you know, you're a very thoughtful guy about the market that we operate in and I suppose the the trends that you expect to see. So do you mind sharing what you feel the future will hold in terms of where we're at, you know, at the, just going into September in, in 2023 and looking ahead to 24 and beyond, what kind of key trends or shifts in the market that are happening that you think will impact not only Verdo but the, the rest of our listeners' businesses as well? So I think, well, obviously I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but, <laughs> I thought but, you did, but, Charles. I thought that no, was why you were... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. And, and I think I think it's good. I think, right, we were trying to, you know, find, you know, navigate those, those kind of trends. But I, I think I think we could basically combine, you know, think the, the trends that are specific to biopharma with, you know, global macroeconomic trends. So I think if you look at biopharma only, um, well... First, it's super good to be part of a revolution, right? It is. It is a still a world that that is undercoming, and and uh, undertaking a, a real revolution. So, genomics as a whole, really preventing and treating disease. I mean, I mentioned there uh, mRNA vaccines. It's outstanding what's uh, what happened with mRNA vaccines, right? I mean, it's really outstanding. Uh, and new ways of producing those those vaccines. Your body really produces itself the vaccine with the code. You give the code, and they produce the the the, the vaccine. And the performance of those treatments is absolutely outstanding. Safety, efficacy, and it's even cost effective. I mean, who would have believed that? It's been developed in a year instead of of ten years. So this is really transforming the world. And you, I mean, the mRNA impact in the world. Is going to be huge. Ten years down the road, we know it works, and that that was really, thanks to COVID, really accelerated significantly the innovation here. But the company were ready. I mean, if you think about Moderna, Moderna they just 
they didn't invent mRNA when COVID hits, right? They were ready because they've launched I mean, 30 programs before. They thought about industrializing it uh, in, in a, in a, on a very large scale. So they were just ready when COVID hits, the next second they were they were there, right? So I think being part of that of that of that revolution is is is, is strong. And it's coming, right? It's not. It's not going to end. Immuno-oncology obviously is still the fastest-growing segment, and obviously mRNA are becoming uh, applied to immuno-oncology. So I think I think there are close to seventy therapies approved right now, and it's not going to stop. Um, I mean, obviously you have in- immune checkpoint inhibitors that have been the first uh, product, but now they are being combined with mRNA uh, products, right? You're, you're seeing an enhancement of those, of, those, um, of those products through mRNA products. So it's, 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 uh, I think it's something that is, uh, represents more than 20% of the growth of the market. And the last point in biopharma that, that I'm seeing is, um, and maybe I should tone that a little bit, I mean, thanks to the recent news that we had, is China. Uh, so I've been extremely impressed by the, what I've seen in China. Uh, the China clinical activity has been um, growing very significantly, especially in cell engine therapy. It now equals the one of the US. Uh, the number of CAR T cell trial is actually greater right now in China than in the rest of the of the of the of the, of the United States. I know that there has been, you know, announcement about you know a sort of potential recession in China, but I don't think it will happen. Uh, for the for the biopharma business, so you know, for the biopharma trend, this is what I'm seeing. Genomics as a whole with mRNA, immuno oncology is still very strong, and China definitely something that is important. China is an R and D engine, right? It's no longer a manufacturing engine; it's an R and D engine. So, if you see, I mean, this this you have to combine with you know the other macroeconomic trend that you're seeing, which is inflation, right? Which means for our industry, controlling costs on patients. The COVID impacts and meaning you have to control your supply chain. And the last point, which is also a macro trend, which is artificial intelligence, right? I think I, I'm seeing those three things and you basically have to combine it. And artificial intelligence really is having impacts everywhere in the world, including in our um, in our um, in our technology and in healthcare. So this, those are globally the, the big trends I'm, I'm seeing. So much, so much food for thought for our listener there. I suppose, you know, and I'm, I'm conscious of time and we're, we're, we're kind of coming to the back end of our conversation, but the China one's really interesting because I think it, you know, my vantage point of being here in North America and particularly the, the US vantage point, you know, we've, I think don't have to, it's not a political statement by any stretch of imagination to say there's obviously tensions between, uh, you know, the US and China at the minute and I suppose in particular, that's probably having an impact on people's decision-making around, you know, what partnerships and relationships and, you know, all that kind of stuff between the US and China. You know, you you have a unique vantage point in that you spent time in the US, but also now, you know, very much rooted back in Europe. Do you, do you see there being more of a openness and receptability, I suppose, of working with Chinese companies and I suppose of in, in taking advantage of the trends that you mentioned there in terms of the clinical and R&D growth in China from a European perspective. Do you think there's a greater openness to collaborate with Chinese companies? That is not always the case, certainly from what I've seen in the US. I think, I mean, maybe two things. I mean, first, um, there are geo- geopolitical tensions 
definitely there are and obviously the tension between the US and China are rising definitely and and right now on the geopolitical standpoint I think obviously the the world is not going nicer but I think we as business leaders really have to play our role here right and connecting the dots I mean supply chain are global innovation is global it, we, I mean, through thanks to this, you know, um, um, cooperation project, we are really tying up the people to. We are bonding up the, the the people together, right? We are not seeing Chinese people as you know um, being that different from European people or U- American people because you work with those guys. They think the same way as you. They are very bright guys, and then people that actually don't you don't go along very well. But you know, I think really the business is here to leverage. Um, and, and to establish, you know, the bonds between the, the countries. I'm, I'm, I mean, each time I go to China, each time I go to the US, I'm saying, wow, that's so important to go there, right, and to do business. And they, they don't, they, they, they just want to do the best, right? And the same for us. So let's try to find a way. It is true that right now there is an opportunity for European companies, right? Definitely, companies like us, and we've been able to uh, establish very strong relationship with Chinese companies. And I've been very impressed by the quality of those people. I mean, to be frank, and they want to cooperate with us, and we uh, are in the way to really find relevant win-win deals. Uh, they um, so so. I think um, I'm um, I'm very hopeful, uh, and I'm very respectful of the of the of the Chinese companies, and I think there is definitely an uh, an interesting business really to make with 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 them. And I think that's a really good place to end the discussion because I think that's a that's a that's not necessarily the well I think it's a very open opinion to have in terms of uh, the the potential for collaboration and I think you just cannot underestimate the potential for growth and opportunity in the Chinese market and how we leverage that and make take advantage of that with the facilities and expertise and equipment and everything that we've got in in Europe and in North America and. Charles, honestly, I love chatting to you. I think it might be a French accent, but it's not just your French accent because it's all the the great knowledge that you've shared today. And I'm sure our listeners have taken a huge amount from today's conversation. So thank you for making the time and being a guest on Molecule to Market. Thank you very much, Roman. Have a good uh, good, uh, day. And that was the wonderful Charles Rubin, who is CEO at Verdo. What an absolute class act of a guy, uh, you know, in just preparing this episode and speaking to Charles and getting to know him a little better, I can tell you what a really, really eloquent, uh, lovely chap he is. So I was really pleased that he opened up and was able to uh, go through his story and tell us more about Verdo today. Um, I'm sure you took lots from today's episode. I think some of the key things that I took away that I, you know, to reflect back on uh, today's interview I thought it was really interesting how he talked about kind of crossing the border from supply chain R&D and, and I think you know talking about those lessons learned uh, you know for going from a technician to a business leader which we see time and time again uh, in our podcast so if you're planning on doing that as part of your career then I'm sure you can take a huge amount from his journey you know I think what's particularly uh, insightful about Charles's journey is his ability to see different perspectives based on his experience so i really enjoyed his story about you know running the biggest peanut allergy clinical trial in the world and then 
you know, the challenge for a biotech company when they get to phase two of deciding whether to license with a big pharma company or go it there, go it on their own. And it was fascinating to hear him talk about the IPO and what that involved and moving to New York as well. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. Um, but again, you know, his journey then led him to away from the public markets back to the private and how a, a call from a, a PE company ultimately led to, uh, I presume, is a spectacular exit for all the investors involved in that business. And, you know, again, for me personally, I really enjoyed how he talked about the difference between kind of running a public listed company and or being involved in a public listed company versus the kind of you know, private behind the scenes uh, type of activity as well. You know, as always, I love a reference to a brand that many of us can, uh, I suppose, relate to. And I think Charles's way of talking about Patagonia with respect to Verdo and the, in the manner in which they have built a very smart, sustainable and functional brand that is critical, not just for now, but also the future uh, as an inspiration for what he is doing in his current role at Verdo, which I think was really easy to understand. And I suspect many of you uh, could relate to that in your own business. And one of the things I always try to do with clients and contacts is think about brands that have created and done what you're trying to do and try and replicate them, albeit in our sector. And, you know, towards the back end, it was genuinely brilliant to hear so many interesting trends and shifts of what is going on in the market. And, you know, Charles was so generous in talking about what he sees you know, other big movers, you know, whether it be AI or China, you know, the growth of R&D in China and also just grow the various growing therapeutic segments as well. So much in there for you to digest and take back into your own companies. What a, what a brilliant, brilliant guest. And I'm so glad I was able to bring his story to uh, your ears today. All right. Thanks as always to my team for pulling today's podcast together. You guys are the best and I adore you very much. Uh, if you like today's episode, please like or share wherever you are listening. And if you're out and about at any of the events this fall, give me a shout as I'll probably be at most of them. Have a great day. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe. So the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.